As I mentioned before, our guest preacher today is a missionary we've supported for quite some time as a part of campus ministry with Crew. In recent years, he has shifted his focus slightly and is devoted to equipping churches with keys of discipleship and evangelism. For fear of stealing more of his thunder, I won't say any more, but we welcome Nate Sims to bless us and strengthen us with his message from the Lord this morning. Nate, please. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. You guys are peppy this morning. That's good. Yes, so I used to do college campus ministry, and you guys have supported us faithfully through that, uh, that time, and it was wonderful ministry being done there. Thing has called us to work with churches, right? Do church planting to help resource churches with outreach and development with discipleship. And so we just love that branch of arm. It's called church movements. And so that was actually developed in 2017 as America is more of a mission field. In fact, America is number six on the most unreached people groups in the entire world by population. Okay, and we'll get more into that a little later. But I just want to say God loves you this morning, all right? He, he loves you. He cares for you. You're made in his image, and he died for you. So this morning, we talked about Acts 17, right? That was a long, you know, passage. There's only three things I'm going to teach you out of that today. There's three points I want you to walk away with today. First thing is that righteous anger isn't bitter. The second thing is going to be that righteous anger goes out, not in. And the third thing is that righteous anger both hurts and heals. All right, so we have Paul. He gets dropped off in Athens, and in verse 16, it says that he is provoked. In the Greek, that means a deep angry. There's an anger stirring up, welling up in Paul. Paul is angry. And it says that he looks out and he sees Athens full of idols, right? So he's irritated about that, right? But how did Paul get to Athens? Well, let me tell you, it probably wasn't very fun. In fact, it probably angered Paul how he came to Athens. See, a few verses beforehand, Paul is doing great ministry in Thessalonica, doing wonderful things, preaching God's word, ministering to people. You have Jews and you have Gentiles accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. Great stuff, right? Well, the Jewish people didn't like it. There's a, a, a little group of Jewish people that were like, nope, let's get them out of here. So they violently do an uprising, and they, they get angry at Paul, and basically he's forced out of Thessalonica, so Paul goes to Berea. Berea, he even sees more fruit. He's doing great ministry over there. Again, Jewish and Gentile people are starting to come to Christ, and things are awesome. Right. Paul's really starting to see the fruit. There's nothing more exciting when people, you see this fruit ministry is going really well, and you're like, yes. And then in Thessalonica, those same Jewish people follow him and get extremely violent, uprising. And Paul said, the guy's like, all right, Paul, we need to get you out of here. So Paul has to flee for his own safety. So then he gets dropped off in Athens. Talk about a bad day, right? Like, I mean, you know, if you, if you have people that come to Christ, you want to sit with them in life. You want to be with them, help them grow in their faith. You know, you want to rejoice with them. But Paul doesn't have the time to do that because he's getting kicked out. If people are angry and they're yelling at you and they call you names and they get violent, you're probably not going to be like, oh, this is just great. Right? You're not too excited about that. So Paul's irritated. And on top of it, he gets dropped off in Athens. And as a young Jewish boy, what are you taught growing up? Stay away from them Gentiles, right? You got to stay Jewish upbringing. He stay away. You got to stay purified, right? So in a, in a Jewish upbringing, he would have stayed away from Gentiles as much as he could have under Roman rule. And let me just tell you, I'll give you at least three reasons why 
it would have been uncomfortable for Paul to be in a society that was ran by Gentiles. Okay, I'll give you three reasons. The first reason was that it's a pluralistic nation. What's that? Pluralism is when there's all kinds of gods in a culture. None of them are the correct god. They're all just gods that can be worshipped, and it's completely fine to worship whatever you want to. So, for example, if you went from town A to town B to town C to town D, every town would have their own god. So when you go to that town, you worship that god. When you go to the workplace, let's say if you're going to a blacksmith, to a leather shop, whatever you're doing, there is the workplace god. You go to somebody's house, you go to a friend's house, you go to a parent's house, family members from scattered abroad or whatever, you worship that God. Pluralistic society, okay? That would have irritated Paul because that's not what he believes. We're monotheists, right? He believes in Jesus as the king, right? Secondly, politically, okay, the Gentiles were ruled by emperors and rulers who actually thought they're God, right? And they weren't really necessarily nice to Jewish people, to his to his kind, his, his people, his, his family group. And so Paul would have been irritated about the political structure of the time. And thirdly, let's talk about ethics here. How did this culture do some things? Well, I'll give you an example. Okay, so even back in that culture, they did abortion. This is what Philo, a Jewish writer, said. He said, parents sometimes strangled newborn infants or threw them into the ocean, or took them to some deserted place where they might be devoured by animals and carnivorous birds, or perhaps taken in by travelers. That was their abortion policy. Pretty bad, pretty gruesome, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Paul and Christians would not have, certainly would have irritated Paul, that people are made in the image of God, right? And so that, that, that certainly would have irritated Paul. And also, uh, let's just talk about marriages for a second. So in Greek culture, if you are a man in, in, in a marriage, the, the, you don't have to be faithful to the wife. The wife has a much lower status in society, so you could actually do whatever you want. You can have a partner with whoever you want to. It's not a big deal, right? So Paul could have easily been like, oh, these people are crazy. They're animals. And we, you know, we just get really bitter and angry at them. Let me ask you a question. How's your heart this morning? Like Paul going into Athens and his circumstances fell apart, how's your circumstances going in life? Do you feel like things are crumbling around you? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel embittered with people in your friend groups, your family groups? Is there any faces that come to your mind that create problems? Are you, angry at your, are you angry at your culture? Are you embittered by the fact that we live in a pluralistic society? This is not a Christian nation. Did you know that there's 165 million people in our country that actively reject Jesus and Christianity? That's a new statistic that just came out. That's more than half the U.S. population. Yeah, that's a lot of people. There is no right God in this country according to when you, when you consider our, our structure of a nation, right? And so we live in a pluralistic society. No God is considered better than another. Are you angry about the political divisiveness of our country? Oh, man, politics get people riled up. We live in a very di- you know, divisive world right now. No matter where you turn, left or right, no pun intended, right? But, like, seriously, people get very, very upset about these things. And then third, thirdly, right, we're, we're having a hard time uh, in 2023 trying to define what a man and woman is, right? And so we're going through some things that would probably uh, would frustrate some of the, the people with Christian worldviews. 
the culture, you know what's rapidly changing in so many ways. And you know what's really easy is to be angry and bitter. From the inside and outside pressures, it's really easy for Christians to get embittered. And what happens when you get embittered and you get angry? Your world becomes really small. You shrivel. But Paul resisted the temptation to be like Jonah. What did Jonah do? God goes, hey, I want you to go preach repentance to that crazy city Nineveh. And, and Nope. Uh, no, I don't like them. <laughs> uh, I don't like them at all. They're a terrible nation. Paul resisted to be embittered and to sit by and watch the city burn. See, if you have somebody really close to you, a family member, a friend who falls into some kind of destructive lifestyle, could be drugs, alcohol, whatever, whatever they do, right? You could be really embittered and angry and just be like, yeah, I'm just going to judge you for making stupid decisions. You could be really um, judgmental. You could just isolate yourself and say, okay, um, I don't agree with it. And I'm just, you know, what, you just, fine. You want to reject me? Go away. And you walk away angry and embittered. Or you can give them righteous anger. What does righteous anger do? I don't agree with your lifestyle, son. You're doing things wrong, but I want to walk with you. Let's go together. I don't want to leave you. I want to righteously angry, you know, have righteous anger and love you through it. When there's injustice, it's perfectly fine to be angry. That's righteous anger, okay? Can't have love without anger, all right? And we can get into that sermon, okay? But what did Paul do? He didn't sit there and go, oh, man, this is Athens. Oh, they're screwing up, you know? He went after them. See, righteous anger goes out, not in. To my second point, righteous anger goes out, not in. Where does Paul go? He goes to the marketplace. He goes to the synagogue to reach the Jewish people because they're not going to be in the marketplace as much. Then he goes to the Areopagus to reach the intellectuals, the religious people, the, 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 the brilliant people of society. So what does that mean Paul's doing? He's going on their turf. See, Paul goes on their turf. He rejects being on his own turf in comfort. He says, I'm going to go to you. I love home field advantage. Okay, I played, I played high school football. I love football. Big football guy. Can't stand Soderton. They were rivals, right? I'm a Panther, okay? So we're, we're constantly going against, you know, you know, all these teams. And I loved home field advantage because you get the music. You know, everybody's pumped up. They're ramped up. You know, you, you know, you can smell hot dogs. And, like, you know, you just... You know, people are just excited. You know, you get to run through, like, you know, that paper thing where it says, like, you know, like, home of the Panthers. You run through it. I'd always try to be the first one to go and break it, you know, for the picture. You know, it's exciting. Home field advantage is great. Very comfortable. Way more fun to, like, especially making a tackle and people cheering your name on. You hear the announcer say something. If you go away games, nobody cares about that. They're like, oh, you know, whatever. So in life, it's always easier to be comfortable in your own environment. Paul didn't do that. He went to the synagogues to reach the Jews. He went to the marketplace. The marketplace was a place of businessmen. It was a place of trade. People did the news there. There was games happening. That was the hub of society, was the marketplace. There was intermixed groups within the marketplace. And of course, that's where he starts to see these idols and things like that, right? Jesus does the same thing. See, Paul follows after what Jesus did. Jesus met people on their turf. Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. Tax collectors, sinners, you're going to them. Lepers can't go to you in society. Jesus had to go to the lepers. 
Jesus, in the incarnation, literally, God of the universe becomes man. That's Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God. Religion says, you humans, you come to my turf. Jesus says, Christianity says, you can't come to my turf. I have to go to your turf. So he comes into our world, our messy, crazy world, and he lives a life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve, and we simply trust in him for eternal life, right? That's the gospel. That's Christianity right there. A God who comes to us and identifies with us. That's awesome, right? Good. I hope so, right? I mean, what's also incredible is that Jesus, now this is where it gets a little personal, right? Jesus, he, what he doesn't do, he doesn't say, come to my synagogue to hear my preaching as a primary way to reach people. He's the God of the universe. I, I guarantee you he preaches the best sermons. And yet he didn't say, all right, you Gentiles, you come out here, you come listen to me. It's not gonna reach him. So let me ask you a question. Why does a lot, I'm not saying everybody, so don't get offended, why does a lot of Christians simply replace sharing Jesus, sharing their faith with saying, hey, you wanna come to church? Nope, okay, cool. Hey, you want to come to church? Nope, hey, okay. Why do we do that? It's comfortable. Very comfortable. Right? Let me ask you a question. If there was an atheist at your job, right, at your workplace, and he says, hey, listen, Friday nights, we meet together as a bunch of atheists. We listen to, like, hardcore, horrible music you probably never listened to. We have a preacher that tells you why God's not good for society, but we have a potluck afterward. We have a chili cook-off. Why don't you come on out? As a Christian, you'd probably be like, ah, probably not. If a Muslim invited you to their mosque, would you go? Mm, Probably not. So as a Christian living in a post-Christian world, 165 million unreached people, a lot of people have negative experiences with the church. When you say, Hey, you want to come to church with me? They, this is what they think a lot of times. Hmm, I got hurt really bad in the church. Nah, it's institutionalized. Mm-mm. It's not very effective in reaching people who are not Christians, the simple invitation. Jesus didn't do it. His disciples didn't do it that way. And we shouldn't do it that way. Not to say you shouldn't invite people. Trust me. Inviting people to church is a great thing. But if we're replacing Go therefore make the disciples. He didn't say go therefore invite them to the church, right? If we're replacing evangelism or sharing your faith with people with simply inviting people to church, it's just not as effective. So, physical location is huge. Meeting non-believers, meeting non-Christians where they naturally gather is huge by physical location. Paul, his love also goes out on their intellectual um, source of authority. What do I mean by that? Every human being that you ever encounter in life has faith. Did you know that? As an atheist, you have to have faith that God doesn't exist, right? Agnostic has to trust their doubts all the time. At the end of the day, they're still trusting in something. They're trusting in their own intellectual properties. And we have all kinds of religions out there. People are putting their faith in. Everybody's a person of faith. So when you're talking with people, you want to talk from their perspective, meet them where their faith is at, their source of authority, Let me give you an example. So I I was getting ordained a few years ago because I'm a chaplain in the Army National Guard and that's a requirement to be a chaplain is to to be ordained, right? So I'm I'm in front of this ordination panel and one gentleman says, got a scenario for you, Nate. I said, okay, what's the scenario? He goes, all right, there's an atheist. He comes up to you, 
how do you convince that atheist that God created the world in six days? And I said, I wouldn't. God, why would they? They don't believe in God. Why would they, if they don't believe in God, why would they believe it was created in six days? That makes no sense. Where is the source of authority of that person as an atheist? Well, science and reason. Okay, so if we're gonna talk about their source of authority, we're gonna have philosophical discussions. We're gonna talk science. We're gonna talk things that meet them where they're at intellectually or wherever their faith is. I'm not gonna sit there and say, well, you have to come to my faith view. I believe in, I believe in this about creation. You need to adapt. You're, you're, you're speaking a different language when you do that. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And Paul, let me tell you, Paul practiced this a lot. In Acts chapter 22, the Jewish people were irritated with him. You know, they, wanted to, they wanted to take him down. You know, how, you know how Paul calmed down the crowd a little bit? He spoke in Hebrew, and he spoke from his tradition, some of his credentials, some of his beliefs, his theology came out. He spoke to the Jewish people, their language. Jesus does the same thing. Mark chapter 12, great passage. We have the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees are interesting people. They don't believe in a resurrection, so they want to get into this argument with Jesus. So they go, okay, Jesus, listen. You know, I'm not going to get through the whole argument, but they want to talk about the afterlife and resurrection and marriage and remarriage and all that stuff, right? When Jesus has a conversation with him, he only quotes from the book of Moses. Now, why would that possibly be? The first five books, the Torah, Pentateuch, right? Jesus only refers to the book of Moses. Do you know why? Because the Sadducees only believe that Scripture is the first five books, unlike the Pharisees. So if Paul were to talk about Isaiah or Psalms or Jeremiah or Micah, they wouldn't care. They'd be like, okay, that's not Scripture. So Jesus, knowing that, says, okay, I'm just going to prove to you from the book of Moses. He speaks their language. He talks on their source of authority. Does that make sense? Good. All right, so by physical location, right, love goes out to physical location and to their source of authority to reach them where they're at, okay, which is, which is awesome. So Paul's in a marketplace, and as he's observing them, as he's in their physical location, he's observing different things. He's observing their religion, idol to an unknown God. He actually uh, picks up on some poets, and he, he figures out what, what, what the culture is starting to say about worldview. And so he's picking up all this information to know how to talk to these people. And then he has a conversation. I can't get into all of the details of the conversation. But he starts talking resurrection. He starts talking about the gospel. And, and he's having these interpersonal conversations. And you know what he gets invited to do? Go to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was an intimidating place because people are brilliant. They're smart. And so Paul gets his, his opportunity to share what he believes, which is a really, really cool thing, right? And so because he's picking up on culture, now we can, we can I'll, re, I'll read you a little passage here, but it's, um, we're just going to go right here. You'll, you'll see what he says. Paul says this, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord in heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man a nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward and find him. Yet he's actually not far from, from each one of us, for in him we 
live and move and have our being, and even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. So, as he's picking the gospel here, about their religious beliefs, he has a conversation. He shares some of the gospel here. The two main people he's talking to are Epicureans and Stoics. Epicurean philosophy or belief is that God exists and probably exists and is extremely disconnected but kind of created the world, live a good, pious life, you know, pursue life, be happy, enjoy life. Stoics, on the other hand, believe that God and nature, creation, are one. Pantheists. Okay? And, it, you know, you just have to embrace the hard challenges of life when they come their way. So Paul does something really interesting. He actually affirms both of them and then completely disagrees with both of them at the same time. So he actually affirms both parties, disagrees with both of them. So for the Epicureans, they don't believe God is like one with nature. So when he talks about that God is separate, God created, but he doesn't live in temples, they're like, oh, that's great. That's phenomenal. But when the Epicureans hear that we come from the breath of God and there's an intimate connection between the creator and creation, they would be very offended. Oh, that's terrible. Now the Stoics, they love that we come from the breath of God. They're like, that's great. Like, God is so close. But they would hate the separation. God is something above us, right? That would irritate them. So, so Paul affirms an offense. You can make common ground with anybody, okay? There's a lot of beliefs out there. You can certainly have agreements but as a Christian, you're certainly going to have disagreements as well. The gospel will offend people. It just, it just will. So I'm going to read this quote here. This is from, from Wright, from Tom Wright. He says this about what Paul is doing. In a 5th century B.C. play, the Athenian dramatist Aeschylus, that's his name, Aeschylus, which would have been well known in Paul's day, the god of Apollo the courts of the Areopagus, and one of the things he says solemnly, as it were blindingly, is that when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. Resurrection is flatly ruled out according to the ground rules at the Areopagus. Paul firmly puts it back in. This is the fulcrum around which the world turns. So the Areopagus, by nature, just rejects the resurrection. It's a foreign concept to them. So when Paul talks about Jesus resurrecting from the dead, it's shocking news. Now, this is where some of you go, okay, Nate, thank God for preachers. Thank God for you ministers. That's why we pay you. Right? Go out there and go do. Were Jesus' disciples professionals? Professional ministers? No, fishermen, right? You know, task collectors, like business world, stuff like that. But no. God chose ordinary people. God chose Israel, ordinary nation. Nothing great about them. God always chooses the weak to go share his news. That's why it's so empowering. Do you know that the center of Christianity today is not America? It's probably in South America. Right? The poor people, the nobodies, that's where Christianity thrives the most. Okay? And so when he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, which we just prayed about this morning, that's the mission. So I guess here's the question. If Jesus changed the world by using ordinary people, how do we do that? Or why aren't we doing that, I guess is the question, right? And there's a lot of reasons why we don't share the gospel. There's a lot of reasons why we don't do it. I mean, some of you are just like, I just can't stand people, so I'd just rather not talk about God loving them, <laughs> right? He's annoying people. 
and political people, stop it, you know? Change your ethics. That's what we want to do, right? Uh, some, some of us could be like, well, I'm just really nervous. I don't know enough information. You know, I don't want, I don't want somebody to ask me a question I don't know. I don't want to look stupid, you know? I, I, I want to look smart, right? Um, <laughs> my, one of my favorite ones, and that's why as an outreach developer for Crew, I specifically designed an outreach for this for, for both extroverts and introverts. But introverts, like, you extroverts do that. You guys yap your mouth all the time. You guys are the social butterflies. You go share the gospel, right? Oh, we need you. We, we need introverts. If you're an introvert, which is probably about half of you, um, we need you because you listen, right? Yeah, extroverts love to just, we don't listen very well, right? Just ask my mother-in-law. She'll tell you. She has, Nate, look at me. She's right over there. She did that the other day. Nate, are you looking at my eyes? I'm looking at you. Okay? I see you. I hear you. We need introverts to listen, to provide that care. Did you pick up? When people open up their hearts, it's really good to have introverts to be able to say, hey, did you pick up on the fact that when you said this, their body posture, they just kind of like slumped in their chair. Now, I have all kinds of cool stories I'd love to share with you. Just not enough time this morning, right? And um, let me encourage you with this. John chapter 4, woman at the well. She was an ordinary person. In fact, she was less than ordinary. In that culture, women were not considered to be of a high status. She was a Samaritan. People didn't like her because of her race. Thirdly, um, she, was, she had five husbands, right? So she's got all this ethics. You know, she's a, she's a throwaway, basically. And Jesus yet takes time and has a conversation with her. And what does she say? Jesus changed my entire life. What does she do? Jesus, you're the Messiah. She goes back to her hometown to do what? Share the gospel with her entire home village, which, by the way, they would have seen her as like, oh, why would I even trust? You're, you're a nobody. Why would we trust you? She didn't care because she had an encounter with a real Jesus. And so she shared Jesus with her family and community in her town. She was a nobody. She didn't know what transubstantiate, you know, all the, you know, she doesn't know what transfiguration, she doesn't know, uh, you know, atonement uh, theology. She didn't know any of that stuff. She just knew that Jesus changed her life. But perhaps maybe we don't share the gospel because we're not enjoying Jesus. Maybe that's the problem. Actually, in fact, that's probably one of the biggest problems, right? So in Psalm 51, David says, after having an affair, restore to me the joy of your salvation. C.S. Lewis talks about this. If you enjoy something, you're going to share it. You're, in fact, your joy will not be complete until you share it. So if my son, who's really into Legos, if he builds a massive He's like Star Wars too. So if he builds a Millennium Falcon, and I said, okay, I want you to go build that in your room. And so he does it. He builds it in his room. And he goes, hey, Dad, come in here. Look at this. This is awesome. And I said, nope. His joy wouldn't be complete because he couldn't share it. Or if he just did it himself, and he'd just be like, ah. he'd have to. He'd be like, Dad, look at what I did. Or maybe some of you are going to have lunch today. You know, you, you know, you're going to go out and have a burger. And it's the best burger you've ever had. You're going to be like, hey, listen, you've got to try this burger. It's so good, right? If you're enjoying Jesus Christ, we naturally praise the things that we enjoy. So maybe, a, maybe some of us are a little bit dead inside a little bit. We've grown numb to the gospel. So maybe we need to fall in love with Jesus a little bit more, huh? Amen. I don't know. So let's talk about that. Okay, so the third point is that righteous anger both hurts and heals. What do I mean by that? Well, when you share the gospel, it's going to hurt you. People are going to disagree with you. People are going to say, um, I, you know, they're going to say hurtful things to you potentially. And that's what we're afraid of, right? We're really afraid 
of people thinking we're weird, right? It hurts. If somebody says something mean to you, I don't know if you're like, it just does. It, it, you know, you kind of live with that. And you, I don't know if you're like, like, like me, if, if somebody, if you want to hurt me, say something really nasty to me, it hurts because I'm thinking like, wow, like, what did I do? Do I need to change what's going on? And words have a lot of meaning behind them. Words can just rip you apart. It can set you in a complete trajectory for a long time, give you insecurities. And so we're very insecure people. Like we want to be loved and accepted by all people. So I'll just give you a helpful thing that I remember when I share the gospel and I'm scared to do it. When Jesus died on the cross, what does it say happened? He's dying on the cross. He's being ripped apart in front of all kinds of people. And people are ripping out his beard and they're mocking him. See, if you, if you read down at the very end of the passage here, some people mocked Paul. He's preaching at the Areopagus. But Jesus was mocked for you. He died. The God of the universe came down to get mocked by little immortals like us. Little mortals, immortals, because we're spiritual, right? We live forever. But, like, we're not God. And, and when, when he is being mocked terribly on the cross as he's dying almost naked on the cross, that's pretty humiliating, wouldn't you say? That hurts a lot. How would you like to be on your deathbed and somebody just making fun of you, sitting there, telling you all kinds of things that are hateful against you? You would, you would not like that. But he did it for you. That's the cost of coming on your turf. Was it comfortable? No. It was not comfortable for Jesus to come to our turf to be ripped to shreds, to be made fun of by simple human beings. Right? So I think in my head, all right, Jesus, I'm really afraid to share my face being ripped open. I don't want to be made fun of. And I remember Jesus, his face being ripped open. Uh, If I were to tell him someday, like, I'm just too ashamed. I didn't want somebody to hurt my feelings. I'm just too ashamed. He'd be like, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. because I lived it in a much more humiliating way, right? So, when you take righteous anger, it's going to hurt. You're going to get offended. It's going to be painful. But it also heals people. That's why we do it. Paul, right? He got mocked, and what else happened? People believed. They accepted Jesus. They believed in the gospel. It heals people. Not everybody's going to agree with you, trust me. Not everybody will ever agree with you on anything. So we genuinely, when people receive Jesus, their whole life gets transformed. We genuinely believe that this world, this church, this community, this world, we all need forgiveness. We need healing. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. It just is. What else is the purpose to life? Right? We were designed to live with our creator, and there's a problem. That sin gets in the way. That selfishness rips us apart. Jesus is in the mending business. He wants to restore relationships. So, who can we forgive? And let me just tell you this, too. Let me just tell you, just, just because I'm here this morning. The most painful wounds come from who? Those who know better. 
Christians have a very hard time forgiving Christians because they know better. They know the truth. If a non-believer comes up to me and backstabs me, it's like, okay, I expect it. They don't have the same worldview as me. What does evolution tell you? Survival of the fittest. Do whatever you can. We as Christians don't live that way. So when we have acceptance, a Christian community that is supposed to be founded on forgiveness and acceptance and grace and love and unity, the most painful thing is somebody who professes Jesus and says, see ya. Nope. It hurts. The gospel heals, and he will heal the hearts of even Christian people. You've been wronged against? It's okay. Jesus forgives you. Every single per- If you profess Jesus, he forgives your past, present, and future sins. That's the most amazing thing that we take for granted. Everything. Past, present, and future. He sees the whole ugly you, and he goes, yep, I paid for that. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. I just thank you so much for your word, for the gospel. Thank you for your healing power. You love us. We were your enemies. We were your enemies, and you let your enemies just make fun of you and rip you to shreds because you cared for us. That's the most amazing news. I ask that you help us as Christians to take your message of love and to pour it out to other people, to live that life, to be the light as you are the light to us, as John 1 talks about. Love you so much, Jesus. We pray that uh, everybody will have a wonderful day and give us, give us the power through the Spirit to live your love. Amen.